2: Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on Direct TV. Terms and restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard the Athletics Can't Wait Jets podcast. Your non-stop shop for all things Jets. Now here are your hosts, Tim McMaster and Connor Hughes. Listen safely.
0: Can't wait
1: two yards away from the franchise's biggest win in years and the jets let it slip away they fall victim to one last tom brady game-winning drive there is a lot to talk about on this episode of can't wait the episode presented by betmgm the exclusive betting partner of the athletics, sign up at betmgm.com. Use the promo code TheAthletic Pod. Tim McMaster here along with Connor Hughes and Marissa Morris. Thanks for checking us out. Give us a five-star review on Apple if you're listening there. Hopefully you're tuning in live on YouTube as well. <laughs> we got a lot to get to. There's the good, Zach Wilson, another step, Braxton Berrios, the young secondary. There was the bad, the young secondary at times. We're going to start, though, Connor, with the ugly, and that was the fourth and two play that really ended up being the game. Um, the The Jets, I, I think we can all agree, and the Bucs proved it, that going forward on fourth and two was absolutely the right call. They would have scored a touchdown no matter what was happening. You needed to get those yards and the game right there. That said, the play itself ended up being a disaster. They call timeout. They come back. It's a play where Zach Wilson has an option. The team didn't want him to take Option A, which was keep it. They wanted it to go to Braxton Berrios. They explained after the game that wasn't communicated. What a mess.
2: Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good. And I, I think you probably hit the the nail on the head in that it was the right decision. I mean, I, I know I was sitting there and I was looking at them when they were going up. I was like, man, you're you're a team with with four wins right now. You're not going to the playoffs. You're a team that's not Headed in any specific direction of positivity or not headed in any specific direction of, you know, uh, of this game means anything. So in my opinion, I I would go for it on just about every fourth down. I'd I'd constantly (laughs) let you you know keep the offense on the field. I constantly let them go out there and and try to make something happen. I loved the game that Ron Middleton called last week as the interim head coach because it was how many fourth and fours, fourth and threes, fourth and fives, fourth and six. Just leave them on the field. Be aggressive. Go for it. You know, every punt. Uh, every punt return, try to go block it. You know, every every throw the surprise onside kick. Coach like Dan Campbell did, or Ron Mendellin did. So, in that opportunity, you've got a defense that is so undermanned. You got a secondary that that is so uh, at such a distinct and dramatic talent discrepancy between the starters of the Jets and the starters of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that you kind of knew that if Tom Brady got the ball back. He was going to go down the field in some way, shape, or form, and it was going to take a pretty big surprise in order for that defense to stop him. So how do you prevent that from happening? You make it so that Tom's never going to touch the ball again. And the way the Jets were running the ball against the top rushing defense in the NFL, the way that they were methodically moving down the field, the way that that drive was going, where they were in the process of eating up, what, the final eight minutes of that game and coming away with a victory over a team that not only is the defending Super Bowl champion, but a team that is – has those same Super Bowl aspirations this year, keeping the offense on the field was the right call. Now, what happened, right? Because this is now the the challenge of it all, is trying to dissect and understand what specifically happened from, okay, we're going to go for it. We take a timeout to make sure that we get the play right, to you just ran a quarterback sneak on fourth and two. The one that's at fault here, the, the one who deserves to shoulder the blame, and I understand for – for some reason, uh, Zach Wilson was getting an immense amount of criticism, apparently, after the game for this one. I, I know I heard that. I, I saw some people mention that to me, and I haven't seen the clips or anything like that. I, uh, Robert Sala was getting some some criticism for it, too. But Zach, I think, was the one that that you know some heard quarterback options. Some saw the quarterback sneak and were like, oh, Zach Wilson just wanted the ball, right? Like Zach Wilson wanted wanted the fame. Zach Wilson wanted the, the spotlight. He wanted to be the one that got the first down. Uh, no, that that's not. That's not what happened. Um, the Jets were in kind of an, an a tweener distance, right? Because uh, football is all about situation, situational football. I was a big Bill Belichick thing. It was a big Bill Parcells thing. And so many other coaches, so many other good coaches around run the NFL preach that over and over and over again when they're putting together their game plans when they're preparing for the week. On a fourth and in inches or fourth and one play or a fourth and one, fourth and in inches situation, the Jets have certain play calls that they like to go to arguably their favorite play call in a fourth and inches or fourth and one situation is that option play that they just ran or that they called up on fourth and two. They had just run it successfully against the Houston Texans a couple weeks ago for an eight yard game with Elijah Moore in a first down. And they realized that in this situation, they were going to dial it up. It's an option play because it has two options for the quarterback to run based off of what he sees. If he gets to the line on fourth and one fourth and inches and he sees the defensive line come in and close in and and crowd that a gap. The quarterback sees that, and instead, of, and he takes the snap and he hands it on the end around to the receiver who comes around the edge, which is open. He picks up the first down like Elijah Moore did for the first down. If he comes to the line in that fourth and inches, fourth and one situation, and sees the defensive line spread apart and that a gap is open, while the receiver still comes in motion, the quarterback takes the ball and runs right between the a gap and picks up the first down, gets half a yard to a yard, gets that first down. The play effectively and successfully runs 99.9% of the time in fourth and a half yard to fourth and one situations. What Salah said after the game was that the Jets decided on fourth and two that they would like to extend that fourth and a half yard, fourth and yard to the fourth and two situation. In doing so, they needed to make it very clear to Zach Wilson, who is a young rookie, that because they were running this fourth and one play on fourth and two the quarterback op, the quarterback sneak the quarterback keeper was not in the in the cards because a quarterback sneak and a quarterback a quarterback keeper quarterback sneak is never going to pick up two full yards it's not it's designed to get half a yard to one yard to inches that's what a quarterback keeper is going to do so on fourth and two that was never going to work A veteran quarterback, somebody who's played this game 10 years, 5 years, understands that. And knows that when this play call comes into his head, it's going to be the end of round. We're just giving it to Braxton Berrios. He's going to go around the side and get the first down. The Jets, though, having a rookie quarterback under center, never relayed that to Zach Wilson. So Zach Wilson gets the play call in his head. He then goes to the line, and as Robert Salas said... He is going to run the play directly as it is designed. So Zach Wilson gets the play call on his head for Michael Floor. He goes under center. He reads the defense. When you look at the end zone view of that, the A gap's open. Okay? The A gap is open. So what that tells Zach Wilson based off his read and based off of this play is that I am running a quarterback keeper. I'm quarterback sneaking it. I'm taking the snap. I'm running between the. I'm running up the A gap and we're getting the first down. What the Jets should have done in his playbook, in his helmet, which is what Michael Floor said and Robert Sala said, is that it was he that they should have said and and why they didn't say this after a timeout is stunning to me. But what they should have said was, all right, Zach, look, we're calling this play, whatever the long wordage and verbiage of the play is. It's going to Barrios, no matter what. Whatever defensive front you see, whatever alignment you see, this is not a quarterback sneak. It is a handoff to Braxton Barrios. We're going to turn around. We're going to hand it to Barrios. He's going to come around the edge, right? That's what they're going to do. Because they didn't do that, Wilson goes to the line, runs the play as designed. If the if this was fourth and in inches, if this is fourth and a half a yard, if this is fourth and one yard, it gets the first down. He goes through the middle. He gets the first down. Instead, because it's fourth and two, it came up short, and and it's it's a shame because the Jets took the defending Super Bowl champs, the team that has Super Bowl aspirations this year, down to the wire. I mean, they they went toe to toe with the greatest quarterback of all time, and like Robert Sala said, they won the game because if you look at the end zone view, if that is relayed into Zach Wilson's helmet to just give it to Barrios, when you watch the end zone view, Braxton Barrios isn't just getting the first down; he's probably getting a touchdown. I mean, he comes around the edge and it's wide open. It's the right play call. He just needs to specify to Wilson. You're not sneaking this. It's not an option. It's just an end around to Barrios because he didn't. And because there is that option tagged on to the end of this play, Wilson did what he was supposed to do by the play, even though it wasn't what he was supposed to do in that situation. And it's an unfortunate miscommunication. It's the result of having a first year head coach. It's the result of having a first year offensive coordinator. It's the result of having a first year quarterback. And unfortunately it cost the jets a chance to pull the, uh, the insane upset because they were 14 and a half point dogs going into this one
1: and the the silver lining of that is draft position which we'll get to a little bit later in the show but but you know we start with this negative play and and where it all fell apart at this position of where this jets team is rebuilding trying to take steps each week fans have to be i mean to be honest ecstatic about just enjoying this football game cuz it was a tremendous football game i think in the post game on field uh gronkowski who's um Never bashful and bashful and boasting a little bit about just he's like still really over exaggerating. He he called it one of the greatest games he's ever been a part of. Which like you think about Rob Gronkowski's career and you're like eh, glad you were able to say that for TV. But um, but it was a great game. It was an enjoyable game to watch. I think and and fans because of where the Jets are, I think can come out of it with that good feeling. And let's talk about the good things that happen here because for you said for most of the game. For 57 minutes, this felt like a Jets victory. Zach Wilson takes more steps. Braxton Berrios was fantastic, but Wilson, 19 of 33, 234. The touchdown, no interceptions again. That stands out. No mistakes for fourth straight week, I think. The rating, 89.7. He was good a week ago against a bad team. He was good Sunday, Connor, against a good
2: team. Yeah, and it's it's the continued maturation from a young quarterback you know I I a couple weeks ago two three weeks ago I I, I wrote about uh I wrote a column after the game I think it was it was before the Jaguars game and it was about how Zach Wilson kind of controlled the narrative for the Jets offseason and and the headline I should I should have worked with with my editor a little bit more on when I saw the headline go up but again like I don't pay attention to headlines because when I tweet out my stories, I write my own blurb before tweeting it out. So, you know, when I, when I file stories, it literally says Connor Jets column or Connor this column or Connor column and just file it through. And, and you know, I worry about the body and my editor takes care of, takes care of the headlines. But uh, the sto- the premise of the story was basically centered around uh, uh, Sam Darnold's rookie year with the Jets, you know, in, in 2018 and how he started so horrifically. His first few games. I mean, if you if you look at Sam's first few games, they mirror Zach Wilson's first 10 starts or so pretty good. I mean, he threw more touchdowns, definitely, but he had more interceptions. He had a horrible quarterback rating. He had a horrible completion percentage, and the Jets were losing, losing, losing. He suffers that foot injury, leaves the field, comes back, and over the final four weeks of that season, he not only won a game, but he kept the Jets in it against the the playoff contending Texans. He went toe to toe with Deshaun Watson, and he finished with a completion percentage well over sixty, quarterback rating of ninety nine point one, six touchdowns, one interception. With quarterbacks, there's a recency bias, and and that's what I wrote. And and it's it's what have you done for me lately? And. That what have you done for me lately can completely change the public perception of that quarterback and the narrative of that quarterback and the feel around that quarterback. Because when the Jets went into that offseason, that was the same year they hired Adam Gase and Dow Loggins, right? And I remember talking to Dow Loggins in a group of three or four people in the lobby of the JW Marriott. And I asked him, like, hey, man, you, you excited for for the gig? You excited to, to kind of come to New York or East Rutherford? And he goes, hell yeah, I'm excited. And I was like, yeah, I was like, well, why? Like, like, what, Like, what? give me some reasons. He goes, there's only one. We got Sam effing Darnold. Like, that was like his reasoning. And, and the thought about that, the thought of working with Sam Darnold was so fun and so good. And so it, it generated such optimism that offseason, in large part because of how Sam finished those final four games, right? Like, that's how that's why there was such a good feel around the Jets was because of how Sam finished those final four games. Now, obviously, Adam Gase and Dowell became a disaster. Sam Darnold never developed. Mike McKagan failed to put any talent around him, so it didn't work out. But there was a feeling around the Jets that offseason that was different, and it was different because of how Sam finished those final few games. At no point were the Jets ever going to give up on Zach Wilson after this year. They were not going to pull a Josh Rosen, Kyler Murray. They were never going to give up on him, trade him. I mean, no, he was always, whether he threw 20 interceptions these final three games or 20 touchdowns these final three games, he was always going to be the Jets starting quarterback next year, period. And these final three games are not going to dictate whether he is a bust or whether he's good. Like that's just that's that was never going to happen. However, if he played well these final three, if he played well against Jacksonville, if he played well against Tampa Bay, if he played well against Buffalo, you don't go into the offseason saying, Well, we really hope he turns it around. You go into the offseason saying, Wow. You see how our young quarterback played these final three games. You see what he did these final three games. Man, I think we really got him. Now we just need the pieces around him. He'll take that next step. It gives you that that joy again. It makes you think that, yes, we've got this right. Wow, we've really got this right. We're going to do this. Like it, it's And there's no good performance from Mike Carter is not going to do it. Uh, Elijah Moore coming back in, in the final game of the season for for 180 yards and two touchdowns isn't going to do it. Quinn and Williams, John Franklin Myers, Bryce Huff, no one else – Can change the overall public outlook and the overall feel around a team, except for Zach Wilson and the quarterback. Zach Wilson as the quarterback. He played well against the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Jets won. The numbers weren't gaudy, but he did stuff where you were like, you know what? That was really fun. This next step against the Buccaneers, this game was the best that Zach Wilson has looked, period. Again, I know he had the near interception, but again, he avoided the turnovers. He looked calm, cool, and in rhythm in the pocket, right? You now have two games that he's built on back to back where you're starting to say, Forget how he looked to begin the season. Forget how he looked when he first came back against the Texans. Forget all of that. It looks like we've got a player here. I mean, Zach Wilson was dealing against the Buccaneers. He was, for three and a half quarters, the best quarterback on the field. He was the best quarterback on the field until Tom Brady got hot after he completed that third and 20. That's a lot. That means a lot. And If he now goes against the Buffalo Bills and he continues that, if he goes against the Bills and has another good game, the Jets' management, the Jets' coaching staff, the Jets' players, prospective free agents—they're all going to have this recency bias around Zach Wilson. Of you know what, the Jets might have something here. The Jets might have a player here. I mean, it's not only just about beating the Jaguars. He now went up against a contending team in the Bucks and played well, and a contending team in the Bills and played well. Let's do this. Like we've got somebody now. We've got a player now. We can we can do this now. And it's, you're starting to see it all come to fruition. You're starting to see it all come together. And I think this game against the Buccaneers was a really, really big one. Because this wasn't a cruddy Jaguar defense. This wasn't a cruddy Texans defense. This wasn't where you had to look to one drive or one throw or one play to say, like, wow, yeah, there's development. Or look for the baby steps. I thought they were legitimate, actual steps forward. And he did it throwing to uh, Kenny Yaboa at tight end and Austin Walter yeah. was in the backfield and he's without his left tackle and his center, you know, he's got Dan Feeney blocking in front of him. He's doing it with Jeff Smith. And, and I know everyone loves Braxton barriers, but let's be honest. He's a, he's a mediocre receiver. So he's doing it with his backup slot receiver and Jeff Smith and, and Keelan Cole and, and DJ Montgomery, because you know, uh, uh, Denzel Mims has been banished again. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's was really cool to see him, elevate the play of those around him, right? Because that's been a coin term that we've been talking about all year. He's elevating the play of those around him. And aside from elevating the play of those around him, he's looking calm, cool, and collected in the pocket. And he's playing now, he's playing right now a little bit against the Jaguars, definitely against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, like we saw him play in OTAs, like we saw him play in minicamp. And in OTAs and minicamp was when we were on this show, writing stories, all this stuff, saying over and over and over again, you know what? He doesn't look like a rookie. He looks ready. And it took a little bit earlier in the season. I think he was trying to do too much. But these final few games, we're back to that point where we were in OTAs and minicamp. A positive. That's not like, oh, he's regressed. No, this is a positive. And then we can look at him and say, you know what? This is a kid who's now starting to deal. This is a kid who's now starting to make plays. This is a kid who, more importantly, is elevating the play of those around him. He doesn't have a ton of help. Imagine if Zach Wilson can do this right now against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers throwing to Jeff Smith. What's going to happen when the Jets go add a player they believe is going to be a true X number one next year with Elijah Moore and Corey Davis and they add a tight end and they continue to improve the offensive line. The feeling around Zach Wilson is changing dramatically over these last couple of games and that's a great thing for the Jets because it's just going to change the perception and the narrative and the overall level of optimism about this team heading into a very, very, very important offseason.
1: He just looked so comfortable in this game. There was a so confidence about it. He used all different kinds of throws. There was some lasers, obviously, but there was also um, there was the screen pass where they came in unblocked and he was able to just flip the ball up into the air, get it to the running back. He just he used, you know, all the different things. It was impressive to see. And you mentioned Berrios, and, and obviously, you know, career game for Braxton Berrios first Jets receiver to score a touchdown, receiving and rushing in the same game. Uh, but you said it. At the end of the day, Braxton Berrios is a limited receiver. He There's a reason he is where he is on the depth chart. But it does speak to the depth of this receiving core that you can have this success with Mims not even a factor, with the injuries that they have to Moore and Davis. And a guy like Braxton Berrios, who can return kick sure can step up and have this kind of game I was impressed with what he was able to do. Did he increase his value as a player with the performance Sunday? Berrios. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's funny. You actually say that because uh, I did Overmeyer's show yesterday and, and he asked me the same thing. Like that was one of the things I was like, wow, Berrios keeps getting better. Berrios keeps getting better. I, I kind of said this to him and, and I, I don't want to say this because I think Bar- Braxton Berrios is a, is a very good utility role player. You know what I mean? Like he, he's a, he's a great utility player, but the one thing you never want to get caught up in, and fans do this a lot, and, and I, I've been a victim of this in, in other sports, is that you don't want to overvalue or embellish the ability of an okay, solid player on a very bad football team. You know what I mean? Like if the Jets had Corey Davis and Elijah Moore and Jameson Crowder or a true number X, like let's so hypothetically, this is a total hypothetical, but say the Jets had a player like Devontae Adams, right? Or the Jets had a player like Mike Evans as their ex-number-one receiver. And then they had Corey Davis as their number two and Elijah Moore as their slot. Those three players have so much more talent than Braxton Berrios does, right? And those three players are going to be able to do things on the field that Braxton Berrios just cannot do. Berrios is scoring touchdowns. Berrios is making plays. Berrios is doing things right now because there are no other options. So... You basically have an okay player on a bad team putting up good numbers because what are your other options? You know, I compare it to when you see a a really bad basketball team and you have a not great player who's averaging like 25, 26 points per game. You put that player on any contending team, and suddenly those numbers drop dramatically, right? It's like Morris when he was with the Knicks and then they traded him to the Clippers or whatever it was. And you saw he now goes from, oh, he's the Knicks' best player, but the Knicks suck, to now he's a role player in the Clippers and he's still a decent player. He still serves a purpose, but he's not great. I said this a, a couple of shows ago, maybe it was last show, where for me, I, I look at Braxton Berry as very similar to to Andre Roberts, who was with the Jets a couple of years ago. Andre Roberts, who by the way scored a touchdown on a kick return for the for the LA Chargers last week. He was a guy who was a great kick returner, a great punt returner, and when he had to play receiver and he filled in at receiver because guys went down, he served a role. I don't think Braxton Barrios is as good of a kicker punt returner as Andre Roberts was. I think uh, Barrios is a little bit better of a receiver, but that's kind of the role. You're not going to pay this guy $8 million, $9 million, $10 million. I don't think anyone in their right mind is going to pay him $8 million, $9 million, $10 million. But you do have a player now who is a Pro Bowl-level returner, who, if he needs to play, can come in and be a very good, reliable slot receiver. He runs good routes, he's got really good hands, and he's kind of a little bit of a a utility player in that you can give it to him on the end of round and stuff like that. But if next year we're talking about Braxton Berrios as this team's starting slot receiver, if we're talking about Braxton Berrios as a guy who's getting 10, 15, 20 targets a game, or we're talking about Braxton Berrios as being the guy who on fourth and two is getting the end in round, the last time the Jets ran that play on fourth down, Elijah Moore got the ball. You want the ball in Elijah Moore's hands 99.999% of the time more than you want the ball in Braxton Berrios' hands. And next year, when the Jets have another level of talent infusion, both with the draft and with free agency, that's just going to be the case even more and more and more. That you're not going to necessarily want to feature Braxton Berrios, although fans love him and he's a good player and he's a great guy. He is a little bit limited in what he can do as a player. He's still a good, decent player. He's a great utility player. But the goal is to make it so that Braxton Berrios is your number four or number five. And when the Jets are healthy, that's the case because Crowder's ahead of them. Elijah Moore's ahead of them. uh, Corey Davis is ahead of them. The Jets want to find a number one receiver next year. This is a goal for them coming to this offseason. They want to find a number one receiver X receiver. If there was a Stefan Diggs available via trade, I think the jets would be very much in the mix to try and go and trade for that player. I don't think that player is there, but they want to go out there and get a number one. They want that. And if they get that number one, your top three receivers are Elijah Moore, Corey Davis, and your number one, they want a tight end that throws the tight end in the mix. Eventually, the Jets want to get to a point where they're not even re- really thinking of Braxton Berrios outside of kick and punt return because of how much talent they have on offense. Because of the dire state of their team right now and the receiving core right now, you've got to have Braxton Berrios in there. Give Braxton Berrios credit for what he's been able to do since he's been in there, but don't oversell his stock. You know what I mean? This is not like a. it kind of reminds me of when uh, uh, GameStop was like selling at What, four hundred, five hundred dollars? <laughs> like, yeah, it was a, a little extreme, but you kind of want to wait for that to come down to buy in. Backson barriers his stock is as high it's going to be, but it's, it's not, I don't, I don't, I I would caution fans to oversell his ability as a player. Enjoy him realize he's a good guy. If the jets can bring it back to three, $4 million a year, I think they will because Joe Douglas would not want to let him go like Mike McKagan, and let Andre Roberts go. But let's not make this feel like it's, he's this unbelievable, unstoppable get him in there like oh my god the jets have their new slot receiver for the next 15 years type thing because ultimately i think that's a role that elijah moore is going to be playing once the jets get their one
1: yeah and when injuries call upon him it's good to know barrios can step up and do that all right we need to take a break but i think uh marissa do we have somebody waiting to to join in
0: yeah we have a question from jason so i'm going to add jason and jason's questions about the offensive line jason what do you want to ask connor hey guys thanks for having me on uh, it's
2: snowing here, so if I look like I'm huddled up in my basement. <laughs> Dude, we got none. Where are you? Where are you at? Are you in, in New York? Washington, DC.
0: Yeah, last Oh, Washington. Okay, there. so it makes sense.
2: Because we were supposed to get like six inches. We got nothing. No, we got
0: hand. at least six inches. Yeah. I hope my University of Maryland too. has a snow day, so <laughs> I'm a little too old for snow days. Um <laughs> yeah. Connor, first of all, thanks for all you do. And uh, I tweet at you thanks, man. I tweet at you and IG at you sometimes. I appreciate your um, professionalism on both platforms.
2: Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um,
0: I've been really impressed with the offensive line the last few games. And my hunch as a sort of amateur is that I feel like LDT has made a huge difference. I feel like he's really showed up that guard spot, made everyone better. And every time I look on TV, he's flattening people. Um, Mm -hmm. I've also been really impressed with Feeney. I know you kind of have been critical of Feeney, but I thought he played pretty well yesterday. I mean, no botched snaps, pretty good in protection. The run game was good. I'm wondering what you think about the offensive line's development over the course of this season, and are we in good shape for next year if we can get LDT, AVT, and McDermott back in the middle?
2: Yeah, so I, I, the way that I look at the offensive line is I kind of just compare it to what they – is it, if a luxury is, and I compare it to wants and needs. And in my opinion, like right now, the offensive line I think is solid enough where you don't have to look at it and say, like, we definitely need this. You know, if Makai Becton comes back – they're able to retain Morgan Moses. You've got three tackles, and you have insurance in case Becton goes down. At the offensive guard spot, I I, I agree with you. I've been actually really surprised at what LDT has been able to do. I think he's playing some of the best football of his career, even better than what he looked in the Chiefs before he opted out and was starting for that Super Bowl team. But I think ultimately the Jets are going to go into this offseason looking for an improvement at that guard position, potentially looking for an improvement at the center position. But what their play the last couple weeks has shown us is that they do have – They have some things working for them right now. I mean, this is the best I think the Jets' offensive line has looked since I've been on the beat. They can improve certain areas, but it's not like you're looking at this offensive line now and saying, oh, my God, they need X or, oh, my God, they need Y, like was the case last year and two years ago and three years ago. Joe Douglas deserves some credit for the way that he's been able to piece this together because both with chemistry and talent, they're making some plays, and and the offensive line is hardly, hardly – the, the level of concern that it has been the last couple of years. And, and that's a major, major step in the right direction for the Jets.
1: All right. Good stuff. Thanks so much, Jason. Uh, thanks for everybody that uh, joins in. This is obviously something new we're doing where i uh, give you the opportunity to jump in, be part of the show. Uh, we'll continue to do it as we go along, but let's take a quick break. We'll be back to talk about the defense, Antonio Brown, and more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone?
2: Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on direct TV. Terms and restrictions apply.
1: All right, let's switch things over to the other side of the ball and the defense. And the secondary, this young secondary, the broadcast talked about how young they were throughout the game. Um, Tom Brady threw for over 400 yards. So I'm not going to come out here, Connor, and say that, oh, this these guys are on their way to being shut down secondary that's going to stop passing attacks. Tampa Bay was able to throw the ball a lot. That said... These corners flashed at times, and they showed. I think they showed something. Hall being matched up with Evans quite a bit and holding his own a lot. Eccles had the good interception. Um, Carter coming out of the secondary to to get in on the quarterback and stop the run was kind of cool too. When he was in the game, it it was a performance where you know they're so young. And at the end of the day, when you look at the stat lines, they got they got torched by Brady overall with the f- four hundred yards. But there's things you can hang your hat on. I think with the secondary and with these young players, um, you know, what was your takeaway as far as those guys matching up with a very good receiving core and a half of Antonio Brown?
2: Yeah, like I mean, let's let's be honest, man. Like you've got you've got the uh, until he stripped down and got naked. You had Antonio <laughs> Brown. We're, we're talking about that, right? I, I think I remember. Yeah, we'll we'll get said, to that. Yep. Like, that was so freaking wild. Um, you had Antonio Brown, who still, I mean, is is a true legitimate number one receiver. I know the the Bucks were without Chris Godwin, but Mike Evans, and even if he had just one fully healthy leg, is still a, a dynamic player. You had Rob Gronkowski, who is who is back uh, and looks just like old Gronk after kind of like that acclamation year last year, and you still got decent running backs in the backfield, and and obviously the greatest quarterback to ever play and one of the better offensive lines, and the Jets are trying to slow that down with. You know, guys like Nathan Shepard and, and Ward and uh Ronnie Blair playing meaningful reps up front and a secondary comprised of, of Bryce Hall and Brandon Eccles and Mike Carter and and a safety rotation of Pinnock and and Ashton Davis and Elijah Riley. I mean we've we've kinda lamented this point over and over and over again, but Zach Wilson or Zach Wilson, I'm sorry. Uh, Elijah Riley was on the Eagles practice squad two months ago. You know, he wasn't even a a, a player that was on a 53-man roster, and he's now starting for the Jets. There is an immense talent discrepancy anytime, basically for the Jets, anytime they take the field against an opponent. And it's highlighted even more so when your opponent is the defending champion and and a team that, again, and I've repeated this several times, but has Super Bowl aspirations this year. You know, you, you see that talent discrepancy. So for what the Jets were able to do this year I mean they were in a position to win the game they were in a position to win the game it was a miscommunication between LaFleur to Zach Wilson with uh, Robert Sala involved that cost the Jets a chance to win the third and 20 was an example of a very young defensive back and a young secondary not completely having the field awareness to realize yes we're playing back. We're playing sticks. But playing sticks doesn't mean you're beyond the first down. Sticks means you're at the first down marker, not letting them get it. It's just young learning curve of a very young secondary. But I, I know, like, I've talked about this with a couple people after the game, and, and it was, oh, can you rip the secondary? How do they let up the third and 20? How do they let up that touchdown? I mean, the Jets were basically in a, in a deep zone in, in the t- in the play where, where Brady hit the game-winning touchdown pass. I mean, no way, shape, or form should a long completion down the sideline for a touchdown, be completed against that defense. I mean, that was just a massive, massive blunder by Elijah Riley. But again, you're talking about a blunder by a player who was a practice squad safety for another team two months ago. So how can you, like, I just find it so hard to to rip this secondary when, in my opinion, and this defense as a whole, they deserve praise. Like, Brady's numbers are are embellished more than what they really were. He was kept in check for the vast majority of that game. The Jets held the, the Buccaneers. They were 14 and a half point home underdogs. They held them to 28 points, and seven of it came, eight of those points, they them to, it held them to 20 until Brady hit that touchdown. Like, yeah, they made mistakes, but when I look at this defense and I look at this scheme and I look at Jeff Holbrook and I look at Solon, I know people are going to be like, oh, you put no blame on the coaching staff. You put no blame on the coaching staff. I'm sorry, man. I, this is my third coaching staff, and the one constant that I've seen, fourth coaching staff, and the one constant that I've seen is that when coaches have good players... Those coaches tend to look better than the good coaches who have bad players. Todd Bowles was a game away from being coach of the year in 2015 when he had a legitimate defensive veterans and players and a legitimate offensive defense and players. He ended up cutting those players. Mike McCagnan wanted to go build this thing through the draft. The players he gave him was slop, and suddenly now Todd Bowles can't coach anymore. A couple years later, he's ready to get another, another opportunity. So it's 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 for me a lot of it comes down to players and when I look at this jets defense and, and and we've we've hammered this point before but they need better players like they really genuinely need better players I think they need Carl Lawson to come back healthy they need to pair him with another pass rushing defensive end this scheme only works when you have two pass rushing defensive ends on that defensive line then you add the three technique and, and Quinnen Williams and Sheldon Rankins and another rotation of players but they need to dominate pass rushers on each side. They need that. They need two dominant pass rushers on each side. When it comes to the secondary, I think Sol and Ulbricht deserve a lot of credit because some of what the Jets' set corners have done, the, the improvement that you've seen from Bryce Hall and Brandon Eccles, it's because the Jets are doing everything they can to protect them in their schemes, in their calls, and their coverages. They're doing everything they can to protect the corner situation. Their biggest problem right now is that they don't even – it's not that they lost Marcus May. It's that they lost Marcus May and LaMarcus Joyner and half of the other players, and they're now have to, having to play with guys – that are, they've plucked off other teams' practice squads, but that safety position is an issue. This Jets defense has shown enough this year to believe that there are some pieces in place, but more than anything, I think this Jets defense has shown ability this year to where you, you can look at them and say, man, you know what? Imagine what this defense can look like if we can take our young corners, the Bryce Halls, the Brandon Eccles, the Isaiah Dunns, the, the Michael Carters, and you add to that mix a ball-hawking, veteran, proven corner. If the Jets can go out there and find their version of Richard Sherman when Richard Sherman joined the 49ers and you add him to the mix, how much does that change the outlook of that cornerback situation? How much different will this defense look if the Jets go out there in free agency in the draft and they sign and acquire two rangy, speedy safeties back there? Because safeties are how you can help your you want to help your corners, you add two proven safeties back there. You add corners with range and speed to go take the to, to cover area and cover ground. How much does that change the outlook of this defense? When it's not Elijah Riley covering covering ground, but say you've got, uh, who is it? It's, it's the the corner from, is it Bates? Bates is the corner from Cincinnati who's going to be a free agent. Or Tyron Matthew. Or Marcus Williams. Or Jabril Peppers. That's the guy who's covering ground and getting deep. Not Elijah Riley, but he's the one who's fl- fading back deep. And he's, got, he's not just going to get there to bat away that pass. A better safety is a chance to pick that one off from Brady. That's how you have to look at this defense. I mean, I think you have to hat tip them to what they were able to do, the fact they were able to keep this one close. I think you have to add this a, 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 and and give them credit for how they were able to contain Brady for the way they did. But you have to take it. I know every everyone wants to, to – very rarely do people, except for when you have the, the rare exceptions like Greg Van Roten, very rarely do people want to put blame on the players because, you know, fans fall in love with players and they want to believe these players are great and these players are exceptional. The fact is is that the Jets are playing – or or trotting out there a a fourth week of the preseason roster as their starting defense at the vast majority of positions. That's not going to be the case next year. Not when they go out there and they're aggressive in free agency, not when they have basically two drafts in one, because they have two picks in the first, second, and I think third round, or maybe two in the fourth, one in the third. They basically have two drafts, the first four rounds of this, of this, this draft, which is absolutely absurd. So they have a chance to truly infuse this roster with talent and, and, you want to look for little pieces and signs throughout the games that the Jets are headed in the right direction. I think they provided that and more against the Buccaneers.
1: So that secondary didn't have to deal with Antonio Brown late in the game because of just a weird situation. Um, Ian Rappaport actually weighing in this morning said that uh, from what he's been told, Brown felt he was injured, didn't want to go into the game. The team said, you're not injured. You need to get in the game. He said he wouldn't. They basically said, then you're done. So, I mean, I'm, don't that's basically the gist of what he was saying. Um it looked like he quit on the team as far as the broadcast and what you saw. I don't know if we'll ever know exactly what went down. But Connor, here's a guy who is eight catches away from a third of a million dollars, 55 yards away from a third of a million dollars, and what one touchdown away. So those are three milestones he absolutely would have reached within this week and next week would have gotten a million dollars. Instead, according to Bruce Arians, he's done with the Bucks. That's yeah. over. We'll see if he's done with the NFL, and it's just the, the spiral. Maybe we thought it was already over, but he gets this chance with the Bucs. He wins the Super Bowl. He had the big catch. You hope for a guy that he's kind of turning things around, but then it, it's the same old stuff that we continue to come up again and again with Antonio Brown, and I, for me watching from the outside – I'm just a little worried about the guy, to be honest, when all these things continue to happen and you wonder how this story ends up ending.
2: Yeah, um, look, I, I think he's done. I, I think Antonio's fully done in the NFL. I mean, I, I don't think anyone I mean, he had very limited options anyway. And if you're a general manager of a team, I mean, not the the lore of it and the seduction of it is that he is still an unbelievable player. I mean, this was – I, I got to bring up his numbers because, I mean, I'm not even talking about the stretch run that he had when he was, you know, tearing up the NFL with the Steelers and stuff like that. When you look at just this year, the guy played in seven games with three starts. He had 544, 545 yards and four touchdowns. He was averaging before – he went into this game against the Jets, averaging like 85 yards a game at 33 years old. I mean, he is still – you saw the route that he ran on Bryce Hall. I mean, the, the he basically – brought Bryce Hall to his knees with a route for a first down. And Bryce Hall's a decent player. I mean, no, he's not Jalen Ramsey, but when you add him to the mix and what you can add to it, I mean, you put him next to another number one or you add, I mean, he is still such a dynamic, great, great player. And it's a shame, but the way that I look at it and the way where where you just got to say it's done is that he knew he was on thin ice. I mean, when, when the Buccaneers high- signed him last year, he was told basically one strike and you're out. He knew that no one else wanted him. He knew it took a plea from the greatest quarterback of all time to even get him a job. And he was on his best behavior that first season. Second season starts and all of the drama starts coming back. I mean, I thought it was actually incredibly weak by Bruce Arians to stand up there and boast out his chest and say, oh, no. yeah, One strike and he's out. One strike and he's out. The guy has a fake vaccination card, and this is not – we're not getting into a COVID debate. We're not getting into a, a a politics debate. But he had a fake vaccination card when he knows he's on thin ice.
1: That's a strike. That's,
2: that's a strike. He gets suspended because of it. That's a strike. He should have been cut right there. I'm not talking about he should have been cut because he had a vac- – if you're going by your words, he should be cut. However, he's not cut because Bruce Arians looks at his receiving depth chart and sees, oh, we're without Mike Evans. Oh, we're without Chris Godwin. You know what? That wasn't that bad. Let's keep him. I mean, I thought that was very, very lame on Bruce Aries. I thought he should have been gone then. But now you continue to give him another shot after that. And you're talking about a team that just gave him a Super Bowl ring last year. You're talking about a team that just gave him $3 million this offseason. You're talking about a team that is in contention for another Super Bowl this year. You're talking about a team that has the greatest quarterback of all time under and behind center. You're talking about a team that has a quarterback to clear or coach that is clearly willing to go for you and a player's coach in general. And you still act out like this. I have never seen anything in my I mean, I'm not that old. I'm 29, but like I've never seen anyone react like that in a game. The guy just took off his uniform, his shirt, threw it to the stands, and then ran off the field and was in the end zone celebrating like they just won the Super Bowl before giving a peace sign and leaving. I mean, when Tom Brady was driving down the field trying to tie this game, Antonio Brown was waiting outside MetLife Stadium for an Uber. Like, that's just next level crazy. And you're right, Tim. Like, you worry about his mental health. You worry about where this is going to go because you kind of feel like there's a catastrophic ending to this story. That's not going to be good. I mean, there's something wrong with Antonio Brown. That's the problem. There is something mentally wrong with him. I don't know what it is. I'm not a doctor. Didn't even say it a holiday in last night, but like there is something legitimately wrong with this guy and he needs help, but you don't get help unless you want it. And clearly he doesn't want it. Clearly he doesn't see there's a problem. I mean, you saw by his tweet last night about thanks for the opportunity. Like clearly he does. He just doesn't have a grasp of reality. And, and our Mark, Co- Co- I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Mark Knobly. Mark Caboli. 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 Uh, Caboli. Our Steelers writer. If you, just Google his name, Antonio Brown, AB, the athletic. And he wrote an incredible story about Antonio Brown. It was one of the better that I've read. A great first-person column um, about his interaction with Antonio Brown because he covered him throughout his entire career. So he covered him when he was a, a nobody rookie all the way up to when he became the greatest receiver in the game and, and probably the greatest receiver I've ever seen play throughout my tenure. He covered him that entire, that entire era. And he wrote really, really, it was a great story about how he went from Antonio Brown, who was such a lovable, nice guy, to this persona of AB and where it all went wrong. And he had this great anecdote in there about how he was, Antonio Brown, back when we were allowed in locker rooms, he used to have a corner locker before he became big. And he was one of those great talkers in the locker room where you didn't have your head, your microphone out. You would just go over and just shoot the shit with him. And you would talk about life with him. Like I had a ton of players that I used to do that, too, that with in the locker room. And, and Mark's was Antonio Brown. And he had this great story about how, you know, Antonio was trying to explain to him a certain route concept. It just wasn't clicking for Mark. So he literally put Mark in the middle of the locker room, told him to play receiver, and Antonio played defensive back and showed him how it was supposed to work. Like, that's like a a really cool guy that's willing to do that. He said within the span of like two, three years. It just completely changed to when at one point he saw Antonio Brown at the Super Bowl, went up to get an interview. Antonio Brown gave him a hug and then just immediately stormed off. He saw him after another, after a radio hit, he went to go talk to him. He completely ignored him. Like he just transcended into this persona that was just a dick. And you've just seen it get worse worse and worse and worse and worse and worse to now you have this perfect situation. A situation that so many players would kill To be in catching passes from the greatest of all time, playing for a player's first coach, coming off a Super Bowl championship where you're chasing another, and you do this and you just give it all away. You give away what's to come, you give away a potential extension after the year, you throw away a potential million dollars, and you go off into the sunset. And in my opinion, I bet you he fully believes he's gonna be on a team on Monday. He's gonna be on a team on Wednesday. Once waiver claims go through, someone's gonna add him because he's Antonio Brown. He's got another thing coming. There were like two teams interested in him this offseason. It was like the Bucs and the Seahawks. You think the Seahawks want a piece of that? You think the Rams want a piece of that? If the if that situation, that perfect situation in Tampa Bay couldn't keep him in line, nothing will keep him in line. And eventually, it trumps talent just isn't worth it anymore. And at 33 years old and the headache that comes with him, and when you can't trust him in a one-score game like that, It was a one-score game when he left or a two-score game when he left, and he just stormed off the field and quit, and they needed him. They had to go to that guy, Grayson, who I've never heard of before. He wasn't even on the flip card. They had to turn to him to catch the game-winning touchdown. Like, it's just eventually just – it's a shame because when you look at that stretch run that he had with the Steelers, he was the greatest receiver I've ever seen. I didn't get a chance to see Rice in his heyday. He was the greatest receiver. He put up numbers that you couldn't put up in Madden, and he did it every other year. He did it every year. What was it, 1,800 yards, 1,600 yards, 10 yep. touchdowns, 120 catches, 107 catches. That's absurd numbers, and it's it's just like, man, wild. And that whole scene, I'll never forget that scene running off. I know that's what we were talking last year about or last week about, like, oh, you know, what do you want to watch this year, right? You've got, like, uh you've got, you know, oh, we're going to see Tom Brady play. Like, I'll be able to tell my grandkids I saw Tom Brady's final game in MetLife and stuff like that. Forget Tom Brady's final game in med life. They're going to be asking me, do you remember when Antonio Brown quit in the middle of a game? Be like, hell yeah, I do. Dude stripped naked and ran off. Like It was wild. <laughs> his clothing so, I
1: mean, into the stands. Yeah.
2: yeah, just insane, man. Insane.
1: Yeah, it's it's sad to watch. Um, you hate to see that sort of thing happen to people because of everything you just said. Um, all right, one last thing to touch on. I think we're going to try to get another question in as well. But uh, moral victories. Robert Sala said there are no moral victories. Connor, it's the NFL. These guys get paid to win football games. Um, but you made the point a little bit in your column today that fans should be able to take something, some sort of moral victory out of
2: this game against the Bucks. Yeah, man. I mean, I don't I, – I just I, – I get what Salah's saying. Like, I do. Right? I, get, I get it. Like, he's like, no, you win or you lose. He was very – that was his, as emotional as I've seen Salah after a game. I mean, he was seething. Like he was pissed. And I think he was pissed because he doesn't care about draft position. He wants to win. And he saw his team go all the way down to the wire with one of the best teams in the NFL, despite how undermanned they are, despite how under talented they are. And they should have won that game. Like they should have won that game. And they were right there on the precipice of doing so. And a communication error between Michael floor and Robert Sala is the reason why they didn't. And you know, if the Jets had called the right play and just handed it off up, say they handed it off up the middle, right? And they get stuffed. Well, it feels different. Say they look at that end zone camera, the all 22 uh, screenshot, and they see that if they would handed it to Braxton Berrios, he's going to get stuffed by Devin White on the outside or he's going to get stuffed by some uh, Antonio Winfield on the outside. And it's just not going to work. You can live with that. But when they look and why Salah said it makes them quote unquote sick is they look down and they see that if Berrios has this ball, he's going to score a touchdown. Or he's getting stopped just short of the goal. He's just gonna take a knee because he's Braxton Barrios and the Jets are gonna knee the end, gonna knee it out, and it's gonna be victory formation. Like they see that. That's what makes it sick. But you can take out. I think it's absolutely a moral victory. I think you can it's 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 teaching moments, it's learning moments. You can grow from this. Hey, this was not like you went up against the Bucs and you lost 45 to nothing. This wasn't like you lost 34 to three. This wasn't like the Colts game, you know? This wasn't like so many other blowouts that the Jets have endured. Over the last couple of years or over the course of this last season, they were in it until the end against Tom Brady. And when you are a young developing team, when you're Brandon Echols, when you're Bryce Hall, when you are Zach Wilson, when you're Kenny Yabo, when you're one of these several players, that are going to be a part of this team. Hopefully when the Jets turn it around and the Jets are perennial contenders, which is what they want to eventually get to be moments like this and games like this are where you can learn and grow from. And I just don't think it's meaningless. And And when it's not a meaningless loss, I take that as a moral victory. When you can take things out of this game, legitimate growing points out of this game, I think it's a positivity. I think it's a positive point. I think it's a major step in the right direction. And, you know, next year, two years from now, I think we'll be able to point to games like this as a reason why the Jets turn it around. I genuinely do believe that. And and I know Sal doesn't want to talk about moral victories, and LaFleur won't talk about it, and Ulbricht won't talk about it. In my opinion, that was a moral victory. It really was. I, I thought I thought the Jets got better after that game than they were going in. They were 14 and a half point road, 14 and a half point home underdogs. And they were a miscommunication away from winning that game. And I think that's, that's you can take solace in that. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. Requires high-speed internet connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on Direct TV. Terms and restrictions apply.
1: And I think from a fan's perspective, the thing you can take from the game is that you got to enjoy an NFL football game on a Sunday where it was down to the wire. You locked in the whole game. Your team's in it. They're winning most of the way. And it's exciting instead of being down three touchdowns at halftime and just hoping to see your quarterback survive. Um, so it was it's a big step, I think overall uh before we wrap things up marissa do we have any more questions
0: yeah we have one more question this is (laughs) swifty hey how you guys doing
2: hey what's up man good
0: wonderful hey tim congrats on the baby
1: thanks Uh,
2: wait till you get two (laughs) that's
1: what that's what everybody tells me
0: Uh, (laughs) just remember (laughs) um thanks for letting me on melissa i'd like to see you smile a little bit more i'll podcast well that's that connor's fault if marissa's yeah. not smiling yeah. it's, it's usually yeah, because of connor. The wonderful wonderful i just want to ask um connor what do you know of zach wilson's character yeah the reason why i ask is because some of the guys on smy were saying he was trying to play hero ball
2: and they were
0: basically saying he had a bad character and that's the reason why he went with the play that he went with
2: yeah so I, I heard about this right I, I didn't unfortunately like during when they when that post game shows on is when we're would be in the locker room but now we're on virtual locker room with the zoom so we didn't get a chance obviously I don't get a chance to watch that live and in person but if you're just if you know that's a quarterback option right like which is what i I know Bart knows and I know any of those guys who have played this game before I know they they saw it and they're like okay it's fourth and two. They know how quarterback sneaks work. They know how option routes work. They know that it's the quarterback's decision under center to keep the ball. So, or whether he keeps it or whether he hands it off. So I know those guys immediately, if you're just watching it from afar and you're like, okay, he just wanted to get that first down. That's why he did it. And you can generate that thought of, okay, he's playing selfish football, right? Like he's playing selfish football. He just wants that. But I understand how you can think that. Sala and and, and other play, people that I've talked to within the building since that moment have provided the clarity. And I think solid did a very good job of providing the clarity of, of explaining that. And I think that if Bart went back and, and, and heard solid speak and then commented on it, he would understand that this was not a selfish quarterback. This was not Zach Wilson wanting to play hero ball. This wasn't it. This was a young quarterback running the play exactly as it's designed, right? Like we always talk about, Oh, don't try to do too much. Don't try to do too much. He's young. I mean, he's, he's 22 years old and this is his whatever start 11th, 12th start in the NFL. He doesn't have experience that he can run back on to know, okay, the quarterback sneak doesn't work on a yard and a half, two yards. It only works on half a yard to a yard. He doesn't know that yet because he hasn't had that experience. So he hears the play call in his his helmet, and he knows, okay, if I get a spread formation or if the A-gap is open, I'm supposed to keep the ball. If they crowd and they pack the A-buck, that's when I hand it over to Braxton Berrios. Like, that's what he knows. So he saw the defensive line spread apart. He saw the open A-gap, and he said, okay, I have to keep it. Which is what the play is designed to do. It was a it was a, a mess up and a mishap by Mike LaFleur to not in his helmet. And it's it's an, a, a it's even more egregious considering the fact they took a timeout. But it's it's a mess up by LaFleur to not say, Hey, I know what the play is designed to do, but you're just handing it off to Barris no matter what look you get keep it to Barrys. no matter what look you get, it's going to him. It's, it's, it's not a, an indictment on Wilson's character. It's not an indictment on, on him as a person or a player. It's not him wanting to play hero ball. It was him going to the line, running the play exactly as it's designed. And unfortunately uh, that, that was a mishap by two rookie coaches, a rookie offensive coordinator, a rookie head coach, not relaying to the rookie quarterback. You got to hand that ball off.
0: All right. Just a quick question to
2: piggyback off that. Let's say
0: Zach Wilson was deciding to play hero ball. Is that so bad of him? Shouldn't he want to be a fierce competitor and win
2: for his team? No, no. And that's why I and think in certain he... situations, like I think in certain situations you can um, turn to that, right? Like I think in certain situations you can you can turn to him wanting to do those things and where it's beneficial. I think this was just in this specific game, it was just a bad part. You know what I mean? Like it was just a bad moment. It was just a bad um it was unlucky. I mean, was, I don't even know if – bad's the word. I, I actually retra- retract that from the statement. It wasn't bad. It was just unfortunate. It was an unfortunate miscommunication. And because of that unfortunate miscommunication, we're sitting here having to have the conversation of, oh, wait, did Zach want to do – I mean, it's just – it's – yeah, he wants the ball in his hands, but obviously in football, it's not like basketball. It's not like you're holding the ball for the final shot. You know, this isn't it. It's – there's so many others that dictate how the outcome comes uh, or how the outcome uh, comes out. So, I think it's just a more of a you – no. Know, I mean, the short, short story is, you no, know, it's not bad to play hero ball sometimes – but in that situation, it's not him playing hero ball. It's it's just him, uh, unfortunately, uh, doing exactly what the play is designed to do, and and that costing him in in the long run.
1: Hero ball is not a quarterback sneak up the middle either. Hero ball yeah. is like taking yeah, it on an end around or, or something. Yeah. you know, like that's yeah. not the glory. Like sticking your head in uh, mm-hmm. the offensive line. All right, great stuff. Thanks for the questions uh, from. The viewers, thanks for tuning in. As always, uh, we're going to be back later in the week. Get you ready for week 18. Hard to believe that we are already f- reached the end of the regular season in the NFL and the end of the Jets season when, for a lot of reasons, the... Uh, The real season begins for the Jets after next week in the offseason, the draft, the prep, the free agency, all of that. You can keep it locked here to Can't Wait. If you want to save 33% off a subscription to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash can't wait for that. We'll talk to you again later this week. Thanks, everyone.